our society seems to say that motherhood makes women unequal. The church says that motherhood is the greatest calling. I feel very caught in between the two because I love my work and it does actually bring quite a lot of meaning to my life. But I'm also very sad and concerned about the devaluing of motherhood in our society and in our culture. And so for me, I think the challenge is trying to find the balance between the two. There are more contributions that we as women do have that can be a real contribution to the rest of society, just as much as they can be a contribution to current or future children. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we are taught that motherhood is a woman's ultimate calling. In fact, in 1935, the First Presidency issued a statement that reads, Motherhood is near to divinity. It is the highest, holiest service to be assumed by mankind. I have always looked forward to one day becoming a mother, but in a world that uses personal career progression as a measure of success, As a woman, it can be a challenge to navigate these conflicting societal and religious expectations. The topic of motherhood was recently explored in a three-part podcast mini-series created and produced by my friend Josie Gleave. In this episode, Josie joins me to discuss what motherhood looks like in a modern world, how women contribute value even if they're unable to or choose not to become mothers, and how we can best honour the diversity and richness of womanhood overall. Josie is a journalist and writer whose recent work focuses on sexual abuse, online harassment and sex trafficking. She is a regular contributor to and monthly co-host on the podcast This Week in Mormons, which is where you'll find her motherhood mini-series. While she was born in Arizona, she's also lived in Australia, France, the UK and now resides in Singapore. My name is Maddie Sterling and this is Choosing Faith. Thank you so much, Josie, for joining me. Thanks, Maddie. I'm really glad to be here. You have your own little podcast, kind of. You co-host on This Week in Mormons. How do you find that? It's fun. It's um, like it's something that I've just kind of filled in with. Um, the the main host of This Week in Mormons, Jeff, he um, kind of rotates through a little circle or cycle of a couple of different co-hosts every other week or so. And it's, it's an interesting setup because I'm used to either podcasting or writing where I've thought about everything that I'm going to say very thoroughly beforehand, whereas the whole structure of that podcast is a little bit more spontaneous. So it's a challenge. You did a podcast miniseries last year, and that was about motherhood in the church. I really loved listening to it, and I could tell that you put a lot of thought and research into that. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) I know that you interviewed a lot of different mothers, um, and they've all kind of experienced motherhood in their own unique way. You know, no journey through motherhood is the same, of course. So as one who's not a mother herself, what did you learn from these women? I think, like as you said, those conversations showed me how diverse motherhood can be. Um, And it was really freeing um, to hear them talk about their challenges or their, the times that they didn't really want to be a mother, but, you know, they still were, or the times that they wanted to be a mother so bad that it was completely consuming all of their thoughts and feelings or 
you know, there was even one mother who told me that she thinks that like motherly intuition is a myth and that you can't really plan anything beforehand. And, um, there were little things like that, that helped me. I think before the podcast, I had built up this idea of how a mother should be. And I did have a plan. And (laughs) to have someone tell me that the plan would just immediately go out the window when the time comes, um, it was a little bit scary, but also, again, I think freeing that it's, it's clearly incorrect that there's only one way or one path. Um, the important thing is love, but that a mother and as a woman, you can choose how you make motherhood work for you. And in your interviews, I did notice the theme that you specifically explored was that idea of what does it mean to be a mother? So based on your discussions with the women who you either love being a mother or have struggled in their transition to be a mother, as well as your own research, what do you believe the answer is? What does it mean to be a mother? Yeah, so there was a talk um, that Sherry Dew gave in November 2001. It was called, Are We Not All Mothers? And she then wrote a book by the same name about 10 years later. And her message was that, you know, giving birth is only one part of motherhood and that motherhood is the very essence of who we are as women. And uh, sort of that the two are synonymous and perhaps the intent of this idea um, and certainly the way that it's been used, I think within the church or other people who have pointed to this talk is to reassure women who don't have children, um, either by their own choice or by other circumstances that they can still be mothers too. And, I think that this can be comforting for some women, but I do see it a little bit differently. For me, linking motherhood and womanhood, it's not incorrect. It's just not correct for every woman's experience. And again, by linking the two, I believe that it has the opposite desired effect of elevating motherhood onto this high pedestal but also devaluing womanhood. And in my opinion, what this phrase, are we not all mothers, says is that your womanhood is not enough, but it's okay because you can still be a mother in your own way. Um, whereas I believe that womanhood is enough. And I also consider motherhood um, like to be a woman who either has given birth or an adopted mother or a mother via surrogacy or a foster mother or any sort of similar experience. But I don't think that the definition extends to someone like, you know, a primary teacher or a young women's advisor or a mentor or a friend or an auntie or something of the like, like in those moments, your role is as a teacher or as a mentor or as, you know, a family member, but not necessarily their mother. Love it. I wanted to touch on the idea of how the world views success, a success in a woman versus the ideal that we are taught at church. And there's this concept of workism that you discuss in your podcast mini series, which was originally coined by Derek Thompson, a writer at The Atlantic. He published a piece called Workism is Making Americans Miserable. Can you give us a brief overview of what he was talking about there? 
Yeah, so he came up with this idea, workism, which is um, the idea that our work is now the center of our lives and that our culture and society believes that we can find our meaning of life in our work. And he, he describes this as a shift from previous decades or generations when a job was just a job, like it was a means to enjoy and survive your life. Um, but it wasn't like the source of your happiness. And now we have careers, which is more of a progression of job titles. And we take joy from that progression. And so he's really trying to point out a way or the shift that now our work is how our value is measured. And I would include in that as well, our, our salary, at least depending on who you talk to, but let's be honest, it plays a part. We, whether or not we like it, like there's a lot of themes about his article that I related to, but didn't love, but could (laughs) still see myself looking at my salary or my work as like a measure of my own value. Um, But a key point that he describes is that how as society idolizes the successes at the office, he says that it's almost destined to undercount the work that doesn't take place in the office. And obviously that means parenthood. And so for many of us, I do think that we have noticed this shift. And as I said, like, I feel very caught in between the two because I love my work and it does actually bring quite a lot of meaning to my life. But I'm also very sad and concerned about the devaluing of motherhood in our society and in our culture. And I don't know, is that because it doesn't come with a salary or like extra lines on your resume when you take time off. Um, I've even been in social settings where a person, you know, like say you're at like cocktail drinks or something or some sort of a networking event. And like one person comes up to a woman and she, you know, they ask what she does for work and she says she's a stay at home mom. And I've watched this, the conversation just stops and it's like, and the person leaves and walks away because it's like, there's literally, you know, what could this woman possibly have that's interesting to share or talk about? Or like, she might, you know, show me baby pictures and like, what do I do? And how do I get out of that situation? Like (laughs) these, these things that it's just devastating to me because I've seen it happen. And I have several friends who are stay at home mothers and I never want them to feel that way, to feel like they can't contribute to the conversation or that they're not as important. Uh, Sometimes it may even be that like, we think that we know what being a stay-at-home mother looks like. And so maybe others just see it as like a non-starter. Like, oh, okay, I know what that job is. So therefore I have no follow-up questions without being able to truly see a person having multiple roles, multiple interests, and always have something of value to contribute. Yeah, it is certainly really sad. And I see the struggle a lot in a professional context. I have quite a few colleagues who are mothers, some of them single mothers with at least one or two children. And they're working a corporate job and trying to find the balance between progressing in their career while raising a family because, you know, that's what 
helps you progress as a person. If you don't have a professional job, then um, what value do you have or what are you really contributing? And for some of them, actually probably many of them, they have to work as well. It's a necessity. Um, and, and I've seen them, they have just their hearts pulled in both directions. They love their children and they want to be around as much as possible for them. But at the same time, they, they love their work or they have to work. And I think in a religious framework, this conflict between these two roles is even more apparent because we are taught that motherhood is, you know, that highest and holiest calling. It leads me to ask a couple of questions and I don't really know if there's an answer. You know, is is the best in inverted commas, is the best mother one who stays at home full time or is it okay to work and place your child in daycare? Does working and contributing to the community actually make you a better mother? And, you know, I feel this tension. I'm not even a mother yet, but it's something that I think about. What are your thoughts on this? Um, My thoughts are that I hear you loud and clear, that it can be super confusing to know what is best. And as you say, in inverted commas, I don't know that there is like the best approach anymore. Um, It's definitely okay to work and It's okay to put your children in daycare. It's okay to work in the community or to find some sort of fulfilling or meaningful work in addition to motherhood. I think all of those things do make you a greater mother in some sort of way. And if a woman needs to work to support her children, then do it. She should do it. And if she needs to support her own mental health by, you know, occasionally getting out and engaging in some sort of work outside of the home, then that's okay too. Like it's really not sinful to enjoy participating in other things besides child rearing. I think that tension that you mentioned comes from the idea that there's one correct way and that the rest are lesser. And from the women I've spoken with, Um, on this podcast and the conversations that I've continued to have with them since, I just don't think that that's true. I know uh, it can be a struggle for many women, whether they're, you know, in the church religious or not, to, to feel like they can take time out. That might be the best option for a lot of women, you know, to take some time off, to focus on the kids, particularly in the early years, or even simply to take some maternity leave. But this can really be quite detrimental to some particular careers and, and that career progression, which is very linear. Um, you know, if it's more than a few years, then, well, you can say goodbye to your next promotion or maybe even being hired again. Not always as dramatic as that, but, you know, the skills that you learn as a mother are not recognized on a CV. So I suppose what I wanted to ask is, how can we better honor those that choose to or end up staying at home to be full-time nurturers to their children, especially especially those that might feel that they've really sacrificed a career. It's interesting, isn't it, that like the value of motherhood is in a strange place at the moment. Um, our society seems to say that motherhood makes women unequal because they're like as you said, their careers may struggle or they may fall behind, and then you have income inequality between both genders as well. And the church says that motherhood is the greatest calling and 
sometimes, depending on how cynical you're feeling that day, it's kind of like, what are you like complaining about? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think in reality, most opinions probably fall somewhere in the middle where we can, we feel the tension and the pull through both, you know, um, I don't think that every instance of motherhood is complete bliss, but it's also not complete misery all the time either. I, it really, we're, we're blended and we're complex people. Um, but hopefully what is clear at this point is that women do have diverse experiences and staying home is one approach to motherhood. And it is a privilege in the sense that your family can survive economically on a single income and is also a sacrifice Um, as in you as a woman are giving up most of, you know, your time and attention to focus on the caregiving. If I can offer something practical, I was thinking back, I just finished a victim's advocacy course um, to help me with my work with sexual assault survivors. And one of the things that we talk about uh, is definitely communication and one aspect of that is to like not silver lining someone's experience. And so what that means is like, if you have a victim who opens up to you about this horrible thing that's just happened to them and you, as their advocate, you don't say, Oh, well, you're so lucky. It could have been worse because that makes them feel worse. (laughs) Um, So stay with me on this comparison, but I sometimes think that we silver line a lot of things about motherhood in the church. And this usually comes from like a place of good, like intent, because we're, I think on the whole, we're pretty optimistic people. So I think sometimes a woman or a mother may feel that it's taboo to say that they're having a rough time or not feeling totally fulfilled. And you may get a response back. That's like, but motherhood is the greatest calling. How could you feel this way? You know, or something like that. And again, it's always said with like someone who's like the person is trying to lift the other up, but it really is just shutting down a plea for help. And I think that we can honor women and our stay at home mothers for the work that they are constantly doing um, by letting them speak. And to me, they deserve much greater recognition for the work that they do. But if it isn't our personal experience, like it's not mine, how can I possibly honor them if, you know, if we don't understand what they're going through? Um, I also think that it's important to try to get to know a woman beyond her role as a mother. Um, like, does she have other skills that can be utilized within the church or within the community? Does she have other interests that you could have a conversation about? Like, don't be that person in that social setting that I mentioned who walks away from a mother because you don't know what to talk about or you can't think of anything, you know, interesting that you two could engage on. I, you know, they're, they have more than one role. And you know what? Maybe it is like they really do want to talk about their kids and how much they are currently loving, like, their role as a mother right now. Like, fully embrace that because... I'm sure that they don't want to constantly think that they're like needing to complain for someone to listen to them and understand them. Like we just need to honor them by letting them speak. I really like that advice. I can think of one friend who has the most amazing listening skills. She had to work at it, but 
having someone like that in your life who steps back to really hear you, to really feel and empathize, and then rephrase it in one sentence. Is this how you're feeling? Then maybe that's what we need to be doing a little bit more. No, definitely. The listening is a huge part. And I think sometimes it's hard to resist the, you know, if someone's explaining their experience to you, you relate it back to yourself to like prove that you understand what they're going through. And I don't actually think that's what most people are looking for, but I do this all the time. I'm really trying to actually stop (laughs) and, or at least to control it. Cause sometimes it can be very valuable to know that like somebody else does kind of understand that they've been through something similar, but also sometimes if you're that mother who's like, no, please, like you don't just, you don't actually understand. Just, I just want to talk about it. And that's all. (laughs) And you can be the friend or even the acquaintance or the total stranger who like is there just to listen. And as you say, and as your friend did, just to rephrase how they're feeling back to them, it lets them feel seen and heard and understood. In contrast, this is another thing that I've observed is that concept of mum guilt. They have to go to work to match the cost of living, but they might not necessarily want to. In a dream world, they would want to stay home full time and look after their children. Is there anything that you would want to add to that last answer? How can we honor these women? How can we help relieve them of that mum guilt that they might have? I think that women take on more of this burden of guilt, uh, perhaps because it was previously emphasized in the church that the women should stay home. And now that council is a bit more flexible and understanding to different circumstances. So holding on to that guilt really is a disservice to mothers. Um, I think that when you feel guilty, you may try to compensate for that guilt by like doing other things. There are several studies that show how working mothers still come home and do the majority of the domestic duties and the child rearing, even though they've been at work um, outside of the home for the same amount of hours as their partner. And to me, that's a bit of a problem. And it's a problem on both ends, right? Like we, as women can ask, we can delegate, we can say, would we need help? Um, And in reality, it's both partners who share the responsibility to take care of the temporal and also spiritual and emotional, but in a sense, the temporal well-being of the children. This is a joint thing that we're supposed to do together. And it's important for us to remember that it is a partnership. And again, that we can delegate some of that work and try to find the balance. I think when we try to do this, hopefully that will remove some of the guilt. Obviously the role that women play as mothers is incomparable. And we all know mothers, we have our own mothers who we can love and look to in admiration, but there's no denying that It can be a struggle for many women, and you and I both know women who've struggled in the transition to becoming a mother. Obviously, there's a number of responsibilities which require enormous amounts of energy, time, love, and it can be a sacrifice in a number of respects. So while for some, motherhood is, is pure bliss and just absolutely wonderful, others experience postnatal depression, might struggle to form connections with their babies, or can 
be left feeling a little unfulfilled. For those women who decide that they might not want to go through that experience or who just don't have a desire to have children, how can they be reassured when we're repeatedly told that the command to procreate and fill the earth remains in force? Does this mean that women who decide not to follow this commandment are actually letting Heavenly Father down? Um, So this is a deeply personal choice and we have been given commandments to guide us. And on the other side of that, we've also been given agency to decide the path for ourselves. Um, I don't think that our Heavenly Father and Heavenly Parents look down on our choices perhaps as much as we think that they do. Um, I find it helpful to reflect back to the temple questions because they're kind of considered the hallmark of how a member of the church should act. I prefer to see it a little bit more as like an opportunity to check in with my own spirituality and my actions. And because there's, there aren't any questions that are um, super black and white. They're very much more about, are you striving to do this thing? And for me, holding a temple recommend is something pretty important. So that's why I bring it up. And with regards to children, there isn't a question that asks, you know, how many do you have or how many are you planning on or something like that. Um, the sixth question does ask if you're following the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ and arguably to, I think the quote, multiply and replenish the earth is still one of them. But answering this question is still very personal. And there are other commandments to consider when responding as well. And I think for me, with most commandments, I'm willing to see that a person should follow them, even if they don't want to, or maybe they don't see the purpose or the reason behind it, just for the sake of obedience. Because you take that leap of faith and you act on the guidance that you receive, and then you see how your efforts may benefit your life. I'm a little less willing to agree with that argument for children just because there are children involved on this leap of faith. (laughs) And to me, they're not something that you should be, you know, taking off on your box of like the list of obedience so that you can feel like God isn't ashamed of you. Um, Chances are God isn't ashamed of you. And that if this is a decision that you are struggling with, then more than anything, I think our heavenly parents want us to reach out to them more. And like the choice to have children with acknowledgement that it's not a choice for every woman, it affects a whole lot more than just you. It's, it really is a constant recommitment and it is a sacrifice, as you said. And I don't know if any of us are in a place to to judge those who choose not to take it on. And I don't have an answer for like knowing exactly how God will judge us on that. But I do know that we still have his mercy and his grace. I like that a lot. Thank you. You're right that we are not in a position to judge how a woman chooses to live her life. So I'm curious to see as a married woman without kids, do you ever feel any pressure to have kids of your own? Um, yes, 
I'm sure it's still there. I do think that I've gotten pretty good at ignoring it. And maybe that sounds a bit harsh because I, I don't want it to be disrespectful at all. Um, because I'm always looking for like familiar love and advice in other aspects of my life. Um, just not this one. Um, <laughs> and for me, deciding when to have children and how many is between myself, my husband, and our heavenly parents. So, of course, everyone has gotten the comments, whether or not they're about uh, motherhood or not. So, like we've we've all gotten interesting comments from time to time at church, and um, I just don't want those to become a part of my decision making process. Yeah, the theme that I'm getting from our conversation so far is that. Being a disciple of Christ, regardless of what gender and what decisions you make throughout your life, is a deeply personal one. And if COVID has taught us anything this year, is that it is our personal relationship with our Heavenly Father and our understanding of the atonement of Jesus Christ that is truly what we should be focusing on. And when we have that relationship in force, then we'll be making the right decisions for our life. No, definitely. I think I think you're picking up on something very astute, which is that we used to have the ideal. And admittedly, we still have the ideal. Like the ideal is what's basically portrayed in the family proclamation. Um, but we do have a constant reminder about personal revelation. And so for me, I think the challenge is trying to find the balance between the two the I want to like I sustain my church leaders I believe them and I want to follow their teachings and how do I couple that with personal revelation I think the thing that has been most enlightening to me um, and we'll get to this a little bit later on because I know that we're going to discuss Eve probably she'll come up eventually (laughs) Um, is that like what do you do when you have contradicting commandments? And she was sort of the first example of being given to con- like contradicting commandments. And I think I never thought that that was something that like God would put us through, that he would obviously give us logical choices and we would just like keep ticking the boxes and keep following along. But it's become more clear to me that like you do actually have to make active choices. And sometimes the choice may not be as clear as I thought it was, you know, back in primary, which was just choose the right. And now it's like, okay, choose the right, the right for me as a member of the church. What does that look like? That's a constant process. I think. I was just thinking about the, the teachings in young women's. I felt that there was really only one clear path for me because of the way that I was taught, um, you know, about what the ideal would be. What was your experience in young women? You mean like lists of what your future husband should be? (laughs) Kind of. Yes, there are some thoughts there. My thoughts are more on the, the emphasis on education because I was raised by my parents to emphasize education. And I felt like the church confirmed that. But then it also seemed like it immediately became clear that other people 
either, I don't know if it was through young women's or through other teachings or just through, you know, social interactions that no one considered my college or university or education experience to be as important because I was just supposed to be like the backup to if my husband was struggling or if we just needed a second income or whatever it may be. Um, and I feel like that does a disservice to both men and women because like you're going to have better and stronger mothers who have a good education and they need to be able to see that they have value to offer beyond, okay, I just went and ticked off this box and got my education because apparently that's important, but I'm never going to actually use it. Like, Mm. I, I don't love the way that it was implied that it would be, it wouldn't be as useful for me, um, or that I wasn't really supposed to have or seek after a career beyond education. But again, I don't really feel like I can pinpoint where exactly those Not came from. I. I don't feel like there was a lesson. <laughs> I suppose just over the six years that I was in Young Women's, perhaps my just overall general impression or my overall takeaway was that I was a daughter of God, of course, and that I was going to marry in the temple and that I was going to have children. That is a very, very important teaching, of course. Um, But I just do remember feeling a little bit like, well, can't someone tell me that going to university is also a good thing? Because personally, that's what I was really looking forward to when I was 15. I didn't really want to get married as soon as I graduated from high school. Right. Yeah. That's interesting because mine was definitely like you are going to university. But I think that that's more of my parents. But I do I do know what you mean. That's kind of like the natural progression um or at least one that's sort of implied. I think the difference now is just that um we're a bit more accepting that the timeline of that can be different. So it doesn't have to be, you know, you graduate from high school and you maybe start uni, but like a year or two in, find the love of your life, get married, go <laughs> to college, you know, have six babies. Yeah, like yeah. that's, I just, I don't really think that that's what the expectation is. Um, but for me, I just wanted, like, I never considered postgraduate study and for the first time ever like that's something that I'm considering and it's still a strange feeling because I was just supposed to go to university and I did that and and now what yeah mm-hmm. and I'm like now I'm supposed to be in the child rearing phase but that's not happened yet yeah. <laughs> so it's just we live our lives in a very <laughs> linear way and through checkboxes. Yeah. And that's good because it helps you stay on track. But yes, as I think we were saying before, there's no one size fits all way of of living the gospel and of living your life, your individual life. Heavenly Father made us with personalities and interests. And I think that should be celebrated. 
100%. And I think that there are more contributions that we as women do have that can perhaps be brought out by either further education or additional training or work in other ways that can be a real contribution to the rest of society, just as much as they can be a contribution to current or future children. Um, and that for me was just the thing that I thought was missing from um, my time growing up um, in youth in the church was just the, the understanding that I could do lots of things. And one of them could be being a mother, but that I still had lots of value and potential that I could offer to other aspects of the church. I was just thinking about the early church statements that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. And I do think that the rhetoric around that role and the role of a woman and where their value lies is changing somewhat. In fact, I was doing some research and under the gospel topics on the church's website, there's a a section called women in the church. And this provides um, what I feel is a holistic view of women and then the value that they can offer within the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think you have that there, Jesse. Did you want to read it? Yes. So it says, women participate in the work of salvation, which includes missionary work, convert retention, activation of less active members, temple and family history work, teaching the gospel, and caring for the poor and needy. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, every woman in the church is given the responsibility to know and defend the divine roles of women, which include that of of wife, mother, daughter, sister, aunt, and friend. Women participate in councils that oversee congregational activities throughout the world. They also have, by divine nature, the greater gift and responsibility for home and children and nurturing there and in other settings. I thought this one was really interesting, and you and I both talked about it earlier in the week, how the description actually offers many different ways that women can serve the Lord. And motherhood being a very important part, but it doesn't actually really appear in the paragraph until about three quarters of the way through. What I liked about this was that it seemed to reflect that there um, are many different roles that women play. And it also kind of matches some of the stories we read in the scriptures. We know that women aren't really talked about in the scriptures as much as men, but when they are there, their stories are significant and there's a reason that they've been recorded. Not all of their stories are about solely uh, raising children. Uh, I think that there are some really great examples in there that we can learn from. I know you have some thoughts on Eve, actually. What can we learn about motherhood and womanhood from her? So Eve is the first example of motherhood as a choice. And when we're faced with God's contradicting commandments, she pondered over which of those she was supposed to prioritize or which she was supposed to choose. And in our church, I think we have a very different perspective on Eve um, and the story of her being tempted Um that's different than the rest of Christianity. The Bible uses the word beguiled. And um, from what I've read, it seems like there's a little bit of confusion about how the translation of that Hebrew word should 
um, should be or how it's gone. And so I've read from one scholar that it's a Hebrew verb that can't be accurately translated because it's no longer in its original use. And so we're not too sure how exactly that was intended. Um, so one interpretation is that Eve experienced an intense multi-level experience um, multi-level as in physical, emotional, and spiritual. And that caused her to step back and to consider and to reassess the tree and her choices. Um, there was a comment that Henry B. Eyring had in 2014, I believe he was speaking to the general women's meeting, and he said to the women of the church, I just loved this, where he said, you have her example to follow. By revelation, Eve recognized the way home to God. So we have clear like proof, I think, that Eve did act on revelation. Um, she came to realize that her choice wasn't just about having children, although that's like a significant part because she brought about all of us. Um, but she also brought about the need for the atonement. And without Eve and her choice, God's plan would not have gone into effect. So she was foreordained as the mother of all living. But I think it's also important to note that she was still created as a woman first and that all together as a whole, um, she gives us a template of motherhood and of womanhood and what that should look like. She's equal partner with Adam. And I think just one of the ultimate examples of what we as women in the church can be. Yeah, I really like that you identify her as a woman first who made a decision to follow God and that decision was to, you know, multiply and replenish the earth, but that she had innate value being created by Heavenly Father as a woman on her own. I like that one of her most important contributions was choosing this idea of agency, this idea that she was going to choose to help fulfill God's plan. And there are so many ways that women can help to bring about Heavenly Father's plan. To kind of round out that scriptural example, I went looking for a couple of other women in the scriptures who demonstrate the, the different ways that we can serve. One of my favorites is Esther from the Old Testament, obviously. We know the story, very familiar, but the, the Jewish queen who is, sorry, the Jewish woman who was chosen to be the queen of Persia because of her beauty and who was a witness to the, the potential destruction of her people. Uh, you know, Haman, the chief man at the king's court, obtained the decree to put all the Jewish people to death and Esther at the encouragement of her cousin Mordecai and at great personal risk revealed her own nationality to the king and in the end obtained a reversal of the decree. There's no mention particularly of her personal life apart from the fact that she was beautiful. I imagine her to be young, but we don't really know what other decisions or what other um, things she was doing at the time. But I do love her words and the courage that she demonstrated, you know, where she says, I'll go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Um, you know, her courage saved her people and helped to carry on the lineage of Israel, which I feel, although it's not like she directly conceived that lineage like Eve did, she kind of acted in a similar way where she chose to do something that was scary. And as a result, a, a beautiful family continued to emerge. 
Another example I found was in the New Testament, and this is the story of Tabitha. We don't really know too much about her either, but just that she was a member of the early church. A seamstress, she was well-known and loved her service to the poor and needy. And Acts describes her as a woman full of good works and alms deeds. She did grow sick and she died. And we read that she was so well-loved that she was mourned quite significantly throughout the community. But Peter visited her and raised her from the dead. And as a result, that word of her renewed life spread and many people were able to find a testimony of the Savior. So we've discussed a couple of different women here and they've all had some different experiences and I'm sure there's many more that we could find. But are there any in particular that you relate to, attributes that you might want to exemplify in your own life? So I don't, or I didn't off the top of my head, know the story of Tabitha as well. Um, and I, I think as you were speaking, I was really liking the idea of, um, her legacy because clearly she made a incredible impact on her community and the people around her for them to mourn her after she had passed. And so the question that was kind of rolling around in my head was like, what am I doing to lead by her example and like, what kind of a legacy am I leaving? Am I, you know, will people, I don't really want like people to mourn me after I die. And also that sounds a little bit macabre, but <laughs> <Quite> like, <morbid. laughs> yeah, but I, I think we can still be guided by this idea of, you know, what are we doing? Is it enough is it important to the community? Is it important to the people around us? How, like we, as you say, we don't know much about what exactly her good deeds were, but that she was doing them and what can we do? I also really loved um, talking about Esther because I was thinking about how fiercely loyal she was um, and how easy it would have been to just think that it was too dangerous or too risky. But really there were so many people's lives who were on the line and she clearly couldn't stand to live with the idea of anything happening to them. Just her loyalty, her bravery, and her willingness to make a sacrifice for somebody else. Like they really are just incredible examples. Yeah, I I like looking at the women all together. The consistent theme seems to be that sense of conviction. We've discussed a lot of topics, Josie, today, and it's been a really enlightening process, I think, for the both of us in preparation for this, thinking about what it really means to be a mother, what it means to be a woman, and how we can best fulfill the path that Heavenly Father might have in store for us. I think regardless of which path a woman walks in this life, whether it be of her own choosing or because of circumstances, Jesus Christ is always going to be with that woman each step of the way. And it obviously can be very difficult at times to feel that constant companionship. And I think it requires us to actively choose to remember that he is there. So what does choosing faith look like to you? I like how you just said actively because 
so it, it reminds me of um, Elder Bednar's recent conference talk. And in it, he was quoting Elder Holland and um, who said, we are witnessing an ever greater movement towards polarity. The middle ground options are or will be removed from us Latter-day Saints. The middle of the road will be withdrawn. If you are treading water in the current river, you will go somewhere. You will simply go wherever the current takes you. Going with the stream, following the tide, drifting in the current will not do. Choices have to be made and not making a choice is a choice. Learn to choose now. Um, so I looked that up because it's been like ingrained in my brain so that I could, and I wanted to quote it a little bit more precisely. Um, I think it can be applied to all aspects of our lives not just womanhood or how we practice motherhood. Um, but this is a constant reminder for me at the moment to not procrastinate <laughs> and to actively make choices and to be okay with those choices and okay that they may change later on and that I may update that um, choice, you know, at a future point, but at least making the choice and heading down a path is like, on your way to progression, some sort of way. And so for me, choosing faith is remembering Eve and the other women that we've talked about in the scriptures to follow their examples and the importance of seeking revelation and how particularly Eve saw revelation as the way that we return home to our heavenly parents. Thanks for tuning in for this week's episode. I learned a lot in preparation for this conversation. So whether you're a mother or not, I hope at least some of what we discussed resonated with you. If you know anyone who you'd like to hear on this podcast, you can get in touch via the Choosing Faith podcast page on Facebook or Instagram. See you next time.